The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let me invite you again now to the Gospel according to Luke in the New Testament. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Uh, we're looking this morning at the conclusion of Luke chapter 2, at Luke 2 verse 41 and following under the heading, The Boy Jesus in the Temple. And as you're going there to Luke chapter 2, I mentioned last week that uh, a lot of people are curious about boy Jesus. You know, what is Jesus like as an adolescent, a young person? Uh, What we saw last week in chapter 2 was the ceremonial responsibility to the law that Mary and Joseph had to bring Jesus to receive the sign of the covenant and be circumcised. Uh, And so they were living in obedience to that. But he was very young at that time. Uh, Here at the conclusion of Luke chapter 2, we have in Luke's gospel the only story about adolescent Jesus. Now, the reason why I think we're so curious about all of this, and some of you mentioned this on the way out of church last week, actually, you know, I've always wondered or I thought or I'm curious, um, is because we want to know what, what was that like for, for a perfect child uh, to be reared? What, what, what did that have looked like? And what was, uh, what was it like for, for Mary and Joseph to experience in their home and for Jesus to have younger siblings Um, you know, saying, oh, you're the perfect one, you're mom and dad's favorite type of thing. Uh, Actually, you may be interested to know that throughout history, this topic is of such curiosity that even in the first and second century, there were additional writings uh, that we call apocryphal because they are not divinely inspired of particular writings claiming to tell stories about the boy Jesus. Two of the most famous of these apocryphal, meaning there's no verification to them whatsoever, they're likely not true, but two of the most famous ones was uh, one called a dyer in Nazareth, and a dyer is someone who dyes clothes to be a deeper, darker colors, to look more expensive, where Jesus went to the dyer of Nazareth, and where the dyer would have a cauldron where everything would be dyed purple, Jesus went as a young boy pulling out of the cauldron garments, and they're red, and they're green, and not only purple, but yellow, and all sorts of various colors, because the boy Jesus was doing the miracle at the dyer's house. Totally apocryphal, totally not true probably, but legendary. But the most famous of these legendary apocryphal stories about boy Jesus, especially because most people are aware of the fact that Joseph was a carpenter and that means that Jesus was likely apprenticed at the carpenter's shop, was that Jesus had the unique ability when you don't measure twice and cut once to stretch out a board back longer when Joseph would miscut the boards. So that was a a famous story told of Jesus, that he was able to stretch back out the boards that Joseph would miscut in the carpenter shop. Again, totally apocryphal, totally not true, and quite frankly, a little silly, which is why we should pay attention to the stories that we do know are true, especially when they're the only ones. So what we have at the end of Luke chapter 2 is a story of boy Jesus, 12 years old, uh, in the Father's house. This is a great text. There's so much that's rich about this and just the experience of Jesus' family life that's there for us to enjoy and indeed receive instruction from uh, that I hope uh, you, you see it. So let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless His Word to us as we hear together the Scriptures. Heavenly Father, we turn now to the Scriptures. And uh, Lord, we delight to do so. We love the Bible. We thank You that You've spoken to us in the Word that we might know the truth and indeed believe the truth and live in accord with that truth. 
So, Father, we pray now that your Holy Spirit that so moved Luke to record these words for us might also rest upon our hearts and minds to receive the illumination and indeed the faith that is necessary to believe all things that you've given. Lord, bless your people here now in the reading and proclamation of the word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the word of God at Luke 2 at verse 41. This is the word of God. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. May He write its truth on our hearts today. Passages like this are why I just love the Bible. This is such a great story. There's so much in here that is just not only fun for us to read about, but also deeply instructive at the same time. Uh, So we mentioned these apocryphal texts about Jesus' childhood that are not verifiable, not true, but here is one that is true. Something of the closest thing we get to like a home alone story about Jesus, except he's not left at home, he's left in Jerusalem. Now listen, so before you're tempted to call DCFS on Joseph and Mary for this chapter, uh, there's some things that we need to understand by way of clarification, especially because we live in a different time than this. Um, Notice, first of all, in verse 41, how it's speaking about the faithfulness of Jesus' earthly parents Uh, to live in accord with the Jewish law, going to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover, all through uh, Jesus' earthly life, just according to custom at the end of verse 42 there. Again, we remember that Jesus is raised in a faithful, godly, obedient Jewish family, a faithful family. So what we should understand about this is that this does not picture Mary and Joseph to be some kind of neglectful oath of parents because they were likely looking after their other kids, their other younger children. And supposing Jesus is 12 years old, you should start to look after yourself a bit, right? Got other things to worry about and other kids to keep track of. 12-year-old Jesus should just kind of, you know, be where he's supposed to be, just like you do in large family gatherings, right? Every parent loves a large family gathering because you can kind of Relax the parental eye a bit because there's aunts and uncles and other people to kind of help you keep an eye out on the kids. And that's one of the beautiful things about this. And something like that is happening here. If something goes so wrong, you know, we'll let mom or dad know. But notice how it says in verse 44 and 45, 
how they would have thought. You know, we'll find him when the night comes. He's not with us. He's probably with, you know, Aunt Joe or Billy Bob or whomever. You know, they're around. And when it gets dark, we'll find him when it's time for bed. Verse 44 and 45, it says, supposing him to be in the group. You know, they would have been traveling in a larger caravan, a larger family, other people from Nazareth. You know, they weren't, you know, solo riding here in any sense whatsoever. Supposing, you know, he's here. He'll turn up. Now, listen, I know what's on your mind here now. Because I've heard a few of you tell me stories about these very things where you accidentally left your kids somewhere or your grandkids somewhere and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to think that you're going to spend the rest of the sermon thinking about what you're going to tell me rather than listening to what I'm going to say or you want to share about the fact that sometimes you know, mom or dad left me somewhere and it scarred me for life. Well, listen, uh, Jesus stays in Jerusalem on purpose. Do you notice that in the text? 12-year-old Jesus is not being acted upon as some sort of like passive victim, what is happening to me, but rather he stays on purpose. And notice how verse 46 says, after three days, after three days. And you might be tempted to think, he was left alone for three days? That's a long time. I mean, you're already leaving my kid at the store and going right back within 30 minutes, but three days is a long time. Listen carefully. It's likely that Luke is accounting the day trip down as one day, the day in Jerusalem as a day, and the return trip home as a day, meaning that the whole episode as a family takes place in three days, and it occurs to them on the third day, and they go back to find him on the third day, which is, of course, historically, biblically, theological, a very significant day. Nevertheless, he's not lost for three days, but he's found on the third day. And really the point of this text is that Luke is here recording Jesus' first uh, words of record in the gospel account. You see that there at verse 49. But this whole kind of family dramatic episode is interesting and you know, curious for us to see. But it's verse 46 and onward where we just find the most remarkable things. And the point of this text is for Luke to draw you in and say, let me tell you something about Jesus. Come closer and hear this truth about Jesus. Watch this. It's this remarkable thing. It says in verse 46, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. But more than that, verse 47 seems to indicate that 12-year-old Jesus is something the center of attention. That among all the priests and rabbis, that he is there holding court, as it were, because verse 47 says, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He's the one talking and teaching and responding, asking questions in this uh, typical Jewish rabbi structure, asking questions and getting a response. But Jesus is not just as a fly on the wall, sitting in the background, staying quiet. He's the center of attention. And everybody is listening to and talking to him. And he's asking questions and they're responding. And he's responding to their questions. He is the one with the audience. Twelve-year-old Jesus. And this is what Mary and Joseph stumble back upon. Now, and you notice their reaction here in verse 48. It's something of a mild rebuke there in verse 48. Son, why have you treated us so? Essentially saying, like, what? you knew we were leaving. Why didn't you come with? This is a, a typical mother's, how could you? How could you do this to me? She goes on to say, Mary does something, so, isn't it so interesting here in this text? Behold, your father and I, speaking of, Joseph, your father and I have been searching for you in 
Luke's terminology here, great distress. That word in Greek means pain, agony, and suffering. This is a mother yanking out her hair. Where is my child? Okay? Now, Luke uses this same Greek word, great distress, in only one other place in this entire gospel account. And it's actually in Luke 16, 24, which is the parable of the rich man and the poor man. The poor man goes to heaven and the rich man goes to hell and he cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this fire. This terminology Luke uses to describe the anguish of hell And here is Mary saying, we are in great distress. Luke is saying, Mary told me she was in hell on earth looking for her son. Now, but even though we're tempted to identify with Mary here and, you know, soothe her anguish, you know, it's terrible that a mother is looking for her child. This is not why Luke is telling us this story. Because it sets the stage for the very first recorded words of Jesus and really the intended climax of this bit of narrative here. Look at what boy Jesus says. 12-year-old Jesus says in verse 49. You know, you can almost picture it very calmly. What's wrong, Mom? Why were you looking for me? Verse 49. Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? He's saying, first of all, to Mary... Mom, you only have to look for people who are lost. I'm not lost. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Don't you know, he says, secondly, I must be in my Father's house. Now, don't don't miss it here. The importance of what Jesus is saying, politely to be sure, without sin, but politely correcting his mother on a, a point of orthodoxy, right? Because Mary said, your father and I meeting Joseph, and Jesus says, but I'm in my father's house. Now this is not to discredit the parental love and support that Joseph would have had in every respect as something of an adoptive father to Jesus in an earthly sense. But the focus of this is that Jesus is well aware, now as a 12-year-old, of what we could perhaps call his own messianic self-awareness. I love to think about that question. When does Jesus know that Jesus is the Jesus that we think about when we think about Jesus? When does adolescent Jesus become to become self-aware of the reality that he is the Messiah, the eternal Son of God? Well, we seem to have this indication that at least by 12 years old, he knows where he should be in his father's house. Now listen, there is only a very small number of children in the United States history that can call the Oval Office dad's office, right? Very small number of children in U.S. history. But there is only one child in all of human history that called the temple my father's house. Not Moses who built the tabernacle or David who wanted to build the temple or Solomon who ever did actually build the first permanent temple. No one, no prophet, no priest or king had ever spoken of the temple like this. No one had ever conceived of or let alone expressed a relationship to God as my father. 
No one except Jesus. Which says everything to us about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Father's true eternal Son who has known from eternity and all eternity the inter-Trinitarian communion of the Father, Son, and the Spirit dwelling together mutually in love and dwelling one another in perfect perichoretic eternal relationships. From all eternity the Father has known the Son and the Son has known the Father, which is why He says, My Father... The Son has known communion with the Father from all eternity, but now here in His incarnate state, as He takes on our flesh, now at 12 years old, saying, I know where I belong. I belong in the house of my Father. And listen, it's been 12 years since the whole Magi, Shepherd, Angels, Manger scene, right? It's been 12 years. So you could forgive Joseph and Mary for forgetting themselves a bit here, because I think that's what's happening. Mary and Joseph knew who Jesus was, of course, but the reality was still a bit beyond them, because Luke says in verse 50, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Meaning, when Jesus said, I must be in my father's house, it, it blew them away. They went from being perplexed, greatly distressed, pulling their hair out to like that, saying, wait a second, what did you just say about who you are and who your father is? And this is what Luke is telling us about the boy Jesus. But beautifully, not before he concludes the account by saying, oh, by the way, that he did go home with them. <laughs> and notice how in the text it says he was submissive to them, right? He listened to them. He didn't stay in Jerusalem against his parents' orders, per se, Jesus is not sinning in any sense whatsoever. And he went home with them after that. But there is Mary again in verse 51. Just like on that night when the shepherds came to worship the baby in the manger, there she is, Luke says in verse 51, treasuring up all these things in her heart. Just kind of taking a step back. Do you ever do this and you think to yourself, I hope I never forget what just happened to me. I hope I always remember all of the details of what just happened to me. Where I was, who I was with, what they said, and how I felt. You ever experienced that? And you think to yourself, I always want to remember this moment. That's what Mary is doing. And you think to yourself, look, why, why is this here? And why does Luke, who is you know, writing this gospel narrative, why does he record this story? And in fact, how did he know? Because Luke is you know, of similar age to Jesus, so he himself would have been a young man at this time, long before he went to medical school. Of course, he didn't go to medical school. Luke, the physician, is at this time. How does he know this? Why? Because he asked Mary. He asked Mary. We can imagine Luke going to Mary and saying, Mary, tell me about what he was like. Tell me about what it was like when Jesus was a child. And you could imagine perhaps Mary just kind of, you know, smiling, shaking her head, rolling her eyes back, and then saying, well, there was this one time where we thought we lost him, but he was right where he was supposed to be. Isn't it amazing the way Mary is learning these truths and then passing them on to Luke who could write them down so that we could benefit from it generations later. And on she goes. Now the irony of all of this, of course, 
for who Jesus is is that Jesus is the true Son of the Father. He is eternal God. And again, 12 years have passed, and the seeming ordinariness of his childhood has made Mary kind of, you know, somewhat not lose altogether, but maybe forget the fact of the significance of her child, and then she is reminded starkly to say, oh yes, that's right. You're not like your siblings in so many ways. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God incarnate that I have brought into the world by way of my own body, who Jesus really is. Now listen, that's a truth that we need to know, the truth of who Jesus really is, but there are other truths here that we need to benefit from as well. Again, Jesus wasn't lost. They thought they lost him. Jesus isn't lost. He's in his Father's house. And friends, listen very closely. Because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done, those people who are lost can find their way home to the Father's house because of him. Jesus is not lost, and he's in the Father's house, so that we who are lost in our sin and rebellion can be found and come to the Father's house. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Jesus says, I must be in my Father's house. And friends, the Christian believer knows that that is true, right? I must be in my Father's house. Listen, church attendance to the statistician and the survey makers in the media and to everybody else is just one other mark of religious practice. How often you attend church, how many Sundays a month, if you attend or not, do you attend in person, do you attend digitally, church attendance statistics matter for all sorts of various different reasons to other people. But for the Christian believer... You come to church because every Sunday is Father's Day. I must be in the Father's house. Now let me be clear about this. We live on this side of the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus. We live in the terms of the New Covenant. You and I don't go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover as Mary and Joseph are doing here. Instead, we go in the Spirit to Mount Zion, the heavenly temple, among the presence of the saints on the Lord's Day, which is another way of saying we go to church. And friends, there is nothing more formative and instructive and soul-shaping to you than to be present on the Lord's Day to receive the ministry of the means of grace the Word of God, the sacraments, prayer, and the fellowship of God's people. Nothing is more essential and formative for your Christian life than that. And it happens over the long haul, but there's where you get your Christian formation and instruction. Now listen, to be clear, we're thinking about kids here, 12-year-old Jesus and younger. Listen, kids may be bored out of their minds in the pew. Don't I know it? But somewhere along the way, the little ones are going to realize, you know, my family's pretty busy. We're always running, going here and there, and doing this and doing that. Mom or dad, they got stuff going on. But Sunday comes around and we stop and we do that. For all the stuff that we do, we do that. Somewhere along the way, little boys and little girls are going to realize you know, God must be pretty important to this family. Because for all that we do, we do that. 
in a way that says that must be most important. Listen, friends, sports, hobbies, leisure, family reunions, the fishing boat and the deer stand, those things matter, but they're not your God. And if you want to find out who or what your God is, you'll see. You'll see by what you prioritize. You'll see by what you choose. You'll find out. Now, what should we say about this by way of a concluding word? Well, I'm going to borrow another word from somebody else. And it's actually one of the teenagers in the communicants class right now. You know, they're filling out these worship worksheets. They're paying attention, we hope. And part of the question that's asked at the bottom is, how does all of this apply to your life? How does this sermon apply to your life? And a couple of weeks ago, you know, one of the sermons was talking about how, you know, both Zachariah and Elizabeth are faithful Jews, obeying God, attending to temple worship, and Joseph and Mary are faithful Jews, attending to temple worship. It's kind of emphasizing the ordinary life of obedience of families. And to the response to the question, how does all of this apply to you? This particular student said, well... My parents are just doing what their parents taught them to do. I'm doing what my parents are teaching me to do, and one day what I hope to teach my family to do too. Class dismissed, almost. I must be in my father's house. That's a student who's only just a few years older than adolescent Jesus who says, I must be in my father's house. Friends, we must be in our father's house because of Jesus because of who He is and what He's done for us, the eternal Son of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your Word and its truth, and we praise and bless Your name, and we thank You uh, abundantly for who Jesus is and what He has done for us and the way that Jesus is prioritized in and amongst our families and shaping our lives. And, Lord, uh, we pray for encouragement and strength to be given uh, not only to families but to every single one of us who long to be shaped and formed into the image of Christ. Lord, would you bless us? Would you bless us in the midst of our weariness and exhaustion and wanting to do the right thing and uh, oftentimes failing and struggling? Lord, you, you love us in the midst of this. And so shape and form us into those people who are looking more and more like Jesus as we say, I must be in the Father's house. Lord, bless your people. Bless them with strength and courage and obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.